All right, great to see all of you today again. If you got your Bible, I know you do, take a look at the book of Proverbs again in chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Continuing on in our uh, new series in the book of Proverbs. If you were to ask grandparents or parents about their major concerns for their children or their grandchildren, one issue that would be at or near the very top of the list would be peer pressure. We look at our society today and we see all sorts of potential temptations and pitfalls that we hope our young people don't fall into. We see the danger of the internet as well as its values. We see the negatives of the digital world as well as its benefits. Uh, we see the general disrespect in our society toward traditional values and behaviors and lifestyles that were almost unthinkable a few decades ago are now as common and ordinary as daylight and darkness. And our grandchildren and our children have grown up surrounded by this society, and so it all seems very normal to them. We might look at it as folks in my generation might say, I can't believe people are doing that. Well, people who are 15, just I mean, it's just like, like daylight and darkness. It is so common and ordinary because they have grown up with it. And, you know, it is, it is astounding to realize, I just was looking at this just a couple of weeks ago, and it, it is astounding to realize that almost one-third of the world's current population has been born in the last 25 years. Let that, th let, let that sink in a minute. 30%, 31% of the world's population, almost a third, is under the age of 25. Amazing. Generation Z, as they're now called, have surpassed millennials, the 1980 to the late 90s group, the, this Generation Z has, has surpassed the millennials as the largest generational slice of the world's population. So the world that we baby boomers, you guys are in my generation, born in the 40s up through the mid-60s, right after the World War II up, up to the mid-60s, the world that we baby boomers grew up in is ancient history in a dusty book in the minds of Generation Z. You don't even know what they're what they're talking about. The conference, uh, the last uh, the conference we we're at this past week, I was on a couple of different uh, uh, panel discussions, and one of the pastors of the staff who was leading the panel discussion said, "Now give your answer in 180 characters or less." And I sat there for a moment and thought, "What in the world is he talking about?" And then it occurred to me, after about 10 seconds, it occurred to me, oh, he's using a Twitter metaphor, okay, 180 characters or less, all right. In other words, make it short. But, you know, a guy in my generation, i got to think about, I don't have Twitter, and I've never had a Twitter account, don't I ever expect to have a Twitter account, so, so uh, you know, and the guy who was doing the, ask, the question asking is 33, so uh, he, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, young enough, he's younger than my kids. So, yeah, make your answer in 180, 180 characters or less. It is a different world today. And we all say that, and we all know that, but when we think and pray and, and, and think about our children and our grandchildren, remember that almost a third of the world's population is under the age of 25. 
Wow. Social norms, job expectations, life expectancy, moral standards, all very different in this new world. But you know, there's one thing that never changes. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew 24, 35. The Apostle Peter said, all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of man is like the flower of the grass. The, the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 1 Peter 1, that is, verse 24 and 25. Peter's quoting from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40. And then the great words of, of, of the, the psalmist in Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So in an ever-changing world, in an always-changing world, the Word of God gives us timeless truth. It is just as relevant today as it was on the day that the God of heaven revealed it to us. God's truth is timeless, whether you're 15 or whether you're 85. God's truth is timeless. So in the midst of all of our worries about peer pressure, we have the timeless truths of the Word of God. And by the way, peer pressure is not just an issue for, 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 for teenagers and children. It's not just an issue for Generation Z. Anyone of any age can be influenced by peer pressure. As Isaiah so aptly said in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Human beings have lots of sheepish tendencies. And the people that we hang out with have a tremendous influence on our values and on our behavior. Which brings us to our study today in the book of Proverbs. Last week we started this series on Proverbs. We began our thoughts with the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29.13 where God said, You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. If we want to know the truth, it's there for the finding. If we want a deeper relationship with the Lord, we can have one. But it takes diligence and discipline and determination. It has to be a priority, not just a convenience. And, and we will see this, this challenge laid out for us over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs. We can get wisdom. But it doesn't just fall out of the sky and knock us in the head as we're strolling through life. It, it, it is learned through the study and the application of God's Word. So here we are in the book of Proverbs looking at an ancient concern that is still with us in our modern world, peer pressure. And Solomon deals specifically with peer pressure. Say, wow, he was writing in 1000 B.C. 3,000 years ago. Solomon's talking about peer pressure for his kids. It's amazing how things change, but things don't. <laughs> yeah. And remember that chapters 1 through 9 in Proverbs record, as I mentioned to you last week, about a dozen lectures, uh, we would call them, teaching sessions on various topics, uh, written as though a father is instructing his son on how to live a blessed and honorable life before the Lord. And these teaching lectures in uh, 1 through 9, I think, uh, if, if I got them counted right, there's I think 12 of them, uh, that, that they, they help us understand all of the Proverbs, the one-verse, standalone verses, that all start in chapter 10. 
They kind of set the stage and they, they teach us the values and they develop the worldview that, that enables us to understand what the Proverbs are. And this very first lecture sets the stage for family teaching and then deals with the subject of peer pressure. So we want to begin to read today in verse 7. That's where we left off last week. I don't know if I mentioned to you last week, but I know some of you are Bible underliners and Bible highlighters. And, and verse verse 7 is the classic theme of the book of Proverbs. And if you are a Bible highlighter or underliner, I would encourage you to mark that verse. That's where we'll start today. And we'll go through chapter, or for, sorry, verse 19. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of your father. And do not forsake the law of your mother, <clears throat> for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those that go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil. And they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. That's one of those riddles we talked about last week. We'll, we'll look into that in a moment. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Verses 7 through 9, which we'll look at first, kind of teach us five principles about God's purposes for the family. There are at least five principles about God's purposes for the family that are in just these two verses, verse 7, 8, and 9. The, the first one is this, that the godly family is intended to be a school. Not like a formal instructive school, but it is, it is intended to be a school. And the main subject matter, the number one subject matter, is godly character. Morality, ethics, integrity, those kinds of things. Reading and math may be involved in all that, as they would be taught, but they would certainly be taught to read so they could read the Word of God. But God's intention is for the family to be a school. Look at, look at, verse, look at verse 8 there. Uh, Hear your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's law. Now, I must say that I was intrigued by this expression, father's instruction and mother's law. Some of you might say, oh, yeah, my mother had the law, right? Yeah, you got that down, Pastor. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but it's just an interesting thought. You know, father's instruction and mother's law. Hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother. The word instruction, or the Hebrew word instruction, is not, just, is not just the imparting of facts and information. It is discipline, it is correction, it is guidance. Uh, not, knowing, not just knowing what to do, but how to do it and why to do it this way. That's all wrapped up in that word instruction. And, and, and the word law, interestingly, I looked it up. It, it is the Hebrew word Torah, which is the standard word that the Hebrew people use to refer to the law of Moses. 
The whole structure of Old Testament law, all 613 commands, I think, in the law of Moses, all the things about, you know, how to plant this and what to wear here and, and how to treat your neighbor and what to do if your neighbor, if, if your neighbor accidentally kills your cow. And I mean, I mean, you know, the whole body of the law of Moses is a big chunk of the Old Testament. And they called it the Torah. This whole body of God's teaching. And here, Solomon uses that phrase and he applies it to your mother. Don't forsake the Torah of your mother. It just kind of intrigued me. It just so Don't turn your back, he says, on all those things that your mother taught you regarding manners and morality and responsibility and godliness and so forth. And of course, he's writing, presuming that the mother and the father in this home know the Lord and are walking with the Lord and are trying to please the Lord, because Solomon certainly at this point in his life was. But so he says, do not or hear the instruction of your father and not just hear it with your ear. We've talked about this before, you know. You remember your mother saying to you many times, do you hear me? She didn't mean did the sound wave penetrate your eardrum. Okay, she meant, are you getting it? Okay, <laughs> that's the same thing here. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the Torah, the body of law, the body of teaching that your mother gave to you. And I want you to hold your finger here for just a second and look back at 1 Kings 2. I just want to show you one verse. 1 Kings chapter 2. Solomon has just become the king. David has passed away. Solomon is now the king, and his mother comes to see him. Some of you will remember that Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. The same Bathsheba that David had committed adultery with many, many, many years before, and had her husband killed, and God judged him for that. God, in his mercy, then gave David and Bathsheba another son, and he was Solomon. And so Bathsheba comes to see Solomon, and she's going to ask something for one of the brothers, and we won't get into that part of the story. One of Solomon's brothers was really trying to be kind of traitorous and undercover sneaky, and Bathsheba didn't really realize what was going on, but Solomon did. And but we, that's another whole sermon and issue there, but I just want you to see how Solomon treated his mother. Look at verse 19, 1 Kings 2 and verse 19. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, who is his brother. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. And if you understand anything about the ancient world and even in our more recent world, kings don't stand up for anybody. The king is on his throne, people walk in and they bow before the king. If the king is not on his throne and there are other people in the area where he is, when he walks into the room, everybody stands. And then after he sits down, everybody else sits down. That was common courtroom edit, or court, court etiquette for, in, in king's courts for, for centuries, for actually millenniums. And so Solomon is here sitting on the throne. His mother walks in. Solomon stands up. And he bows to his mother. Come in, Mom. Bring another throne. And he sets a throne here. Sit down here on my right hand, the place of honor. What can I do for you? I'll do whatever you need. 
See, Solomon is, is living what he said here. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Now, he didn't say, you know, I know the way you started out with my dad. And, you know, I mean, I know you guys had a big fling and God took my older brother in punishment for all that. And, you know, no. Bathsheba walks in, he stands up and he bows. Come right up, mother. Sit down. Bring her, bring another throne for my mother and put her right here next to me. He had heard the instruction of his father. And he had not forsaken the law of his mother. So the godly family is intended to be a school. And you know, I, I understand that in, in this mixed up world, we'll be back in Proverbs 1 here now. I understand that in this mixed up world, the, the, the structure of family can be quite skewed and all out of whack compared to God's intentions. You don't often have a father and a mother in the same home who both know the Lord, who both love the Lord, who are both trying to serve the Lord. That, that, that's, that's not as common as I wish it was. But this is God's pattern. And, and, and we always pray that we can come as close as we possibly can for the sake of our children to having a godly father image and a godly mother image in the lives of all of our descendants. So, so the godly family is intended to be a school to teach the ways of God to the next generation. Number two, the foundation of the family should be the fear of the Lord. My next points won't take quite as long as the first one. But the, the, the foundation of the family should be the fear of the Lord. As we saw in verse 7, <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You see, we cannot, as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and who, whatever children God has placed in your life, we cannot teach the ways of the Lord without the fear of the Lord. Because if we try to do that, if we try to teach kids to be good and kids to do this and that, and, 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 and we try to teach that without teaching them to respect God, <clears throat> and without teaching them the right motivation for why they're to be good, not just because mom said so, because the Bible says this is right, the God of heaven says this is the way we should live. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so if we try teaching the ways of the Lord without the fear of the Lord, then we end up creating little Pharisees who are all cleaned up on the outside, but their hearts are far, far from God. See, neither we nor our children will have the proper motivation for serving God without the fear of the Lord. We end up trying to look godly and act godly for our own self-serving purposes rather than out of respect and reverence for God. The family's foundation should be the fear of the Lord. Number three, the teaching responsibility should be shared by both parents. Kind of obvious from the text. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother. And again, I, I realize in our world, as in the ancient world, parents are not always on the same page when it comes to the training of their children. Some fathers are not even there physically or emotionally. Some dads are totally disconnected even though they're there. Some mothers are totally preoccupied even though they're there. I get that. It's not right. And it's not biblical, but it is a reality in some families. It is tragic, it is unfortunate, and it is a clear sign that sinful choices have marred God's pattern for family life. 
But God's pattern is for both parents to be involved in the training of their children. It gives a good balance. It gives a godly balance. Hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Then number four, children should respect their parents and their teaching. As we just said, hear your father's instruction. Don't forsake your mother's law. Make these godly principles for living that they have taught you part of your life. Honor their teaching. You hear this truth repeated over and over and over and over again in Solomon's teaching. Listen to your parents. Listen to your grandparents. Listen to your elders. He, he, he set the pattern for this just as we read in 1 Kings chapter 2 a moment ago. Still, even though he is the absolute ruler as the king, still treats his mother with the utmost respect. Then number five, there is, a, there is a promise of blessing or reward. You could have blessing slash reward. There's a promise for that. The instruction of your father and the law of your mother, he said, it's going to be according to verse 9, it'll be like ornaments of grace and jewelry. A graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. The picture there is, is like awards that are won in a contest. In other words, you say, if you will listen to what your mother and father taught you, if you will pay attention to that, if you will not turn away from it, he said, you, you will experience victory and celebration and joy and honor. It's going to come to you later in life because you listen to your father's instruction and your mother's law. Look at Proverbs 14 for just one moment, and then we'll jump into our peer pressure section of the, of the book. Proverbs 14, I just want to read a couple of verses to you there. Proverbs 14, verse 26 and 27. <clears throat> Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and His children will have a place of refuge, meaning God's children. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. You see those two great promises when we have the fear of the Lord? It's strong confidence. We can be content and confident in God. With the fear of the Lord, there is confidence. And in the fear of the Lord, there's a fountain of life. It's going to be bursting forth to us. We're going to be blessed. We're going to experience the blessing of God. We're going to walk in confidence in this life when the trials and the storms of life come. We can walk confidently because we are living in the fear of the Lord. Great promises there. As Solomon said back in chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So he said, listen to your parents. Hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother. It's going to be like a graceful ornament, chains about your neck. It's going to be honor and glory and, and, and comfort and victory and blessing. Presuming, of course, that they gave you godly counsel, which is what he is assuming here. <clears throat> so, what is the first pitfall that will keep you from living in the fear of the Lord? It's peer pressure. If you look back at Proverbs 1, we'll look at our section again here. Peer pressure. My son, if sinners entice you, verse 10, do not consent. Meaning, say, don't, don't say yes, don't give in, don't cave as we often say. Now the word sinners is generally a reference to those who are willfully living a sinful lifestyle. We're all sinners in the eyes of the Lord. There's no one without sin. We know that. 
Uh, I won't quote scriptures to you on that, but you're, you're well acquainted with that truth from the scripture. But there are those who are willfully living in sin and rebellion against God. And those are the people Solomon's referring to here. Not that everyone has a sin nature, everyone sins, but there are some people who are openly living in rebellion against God. So he says, if those kinds of people come to you, my son, and they entice you and they want to draw you in, that's peer pressure, okay, come and do this with us. He says, do not consent. And there are three key concepts here. I call three three red flags that kind of pop up or should pop up in your mind when peer pressure is coming at you. There, there, there are three, three elements of, of peer pressure that you will always see, at least one of them, sometimes more than one of them, when peer pressure is coming at you. And we just put it in, in, in three words. Hide, hurt, and have. And we'll look at those. Hide, hurt, and have. Verse 11, he says, If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. And of course the people he's talking about here, they are murderous thieves. And most of the time when peer pressure comes to us or our kids, it's not it's not they're trying to commit you to commit murder and steal things, but the principles are still there. What will going along require you to lie or pretend or keep something a secret? Will what will will going along will it hinder you from walking in the light? Will it break your fellowship with God? Will it break your fellowship with other people? Peer pressure to sin always lures you into hiding. There's always something that you have to cover up. We will lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. See, peer pressure to sin always lures you in, 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 into hiding. Always leaves you with something to cover up. <clears throat> Maybe your boss is pressuring you into deceiving a customer. Maybe a friend is gossiping to you, so now you've got to pretend like you don't know something that you actually know. Maybe your sibling says, and this, this is an old story, don't tell mom. Or your friend says, if you're in school maybe, don't tell your parents. Don't tell the teacher. Peer pressure to sin always leads you into hiding something. Or for adults, don't tell your wife. Don't tell your husband. And even to think further, think of the, the, the secrecy that certain kinds of marketing promotes. How many advertisements do you see that kind of entice you to indulge in a secret pleasure? Everybody's watching this. Everybody needs to own this. Everybody's participating in this. And that alluring headline or provocative image, it kind of lures you to a place that you know you shouldn't go. It's going to lead to hidden guilt. It's going to lead to shame and regret. So sometime you, you, later you, you'll have to pretend that you don't have those images floating around in your memory. You don't have those words ringing in your ears. You see, peer pressure to sin always lures you into hiding something. <clears throat> So when peer pressure is coming at you, ask your question, do I have to hide something? If I do, I'm not doing it. So the second word, hurt. Of course, again, these are murderous thieves, so we're going to lurk secretly for the innocent. We're going to beat them up. We're going to throw them in the pit. We're going to swallow them alive like, like Sheol, the grave. But the question is this. Will going along with this hurt somebody? Is there a victim involved? Will there be blood? Maybe not literally, but will anybody be ambushed? 
Obviously, as I say, the people in our text are murderous thieves, so this peer pressure to this temptation may be something as vicious as a terrorist group recruiting young people over the internet, or as in our inner cities or many places even around here, a gang initiation that involves a violent act. Or it could be something as subtle as a group of friends mocking someone for a laugh. Or somebody in a business situation misrepresenting their work to get more money from a client. Peer pressure to sin almost always involves somebody getting hurt. And then the third word, have. Verse 13 and 14, we all, she said, we shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast your lot in among us. We'll all have one purse. In other words, after we rob and steal and do all this stuff, we'll all split it up among each other. And my, my questions would be this, does going along with this promise easy profit? Is it going to lead to precious possessions, as I said, that you didn't earn? Or spoil or plunder, as I said, rather than the fruit of your own labor? You see, a financial schemer may promise big money with no effort. The cheater in school promises A's without study. The seductive woman or the alluring man promises pleasure without commitment. The gossip promises knowledge without responsibility. Lottery advertisements promise winnings, not earnings. Every peer pressure to sin will involve one or more of these red flags. Hide, hurt, or have. Maybe two or three of them, maybe all three of them, maybe only be, oh, only be one of them. But every peer pressure to sin will, will, will throw up one of these three flags. Will I have to hide something? Is somebody going to get hurt? Am I going to get things for myself at the expense of someone else? They're always there. Watch for the red flags. But the Solomon not only tells his son what the problem is, he gives the solution. And starting in verse 10 and then the rest of these verses, he says, this is how you should respond to peer pressure. Number one, he says, resist the pressure. If sinners entice you, my son, do not consent. Don't be willing. Don't go along. Don't say, well, maybe this once. I mean, one time never hurt anybody. I mean, I'm not going to get hooked. I mean, I can tell them no next time. I don't want to look like a weirdo. If I go along today, maybe they'll leave me alone. No, no, Solomon said, my son, do not consent. Don't give in. If you have an answer, give your answer and stand on it. If you don't know what to say, just say no. Resist the pressure. Growing up near the ocean and swimming in salt water taught us that you have to watch out for undertoes and rip currents. I won't get into all the details of which one is which and why they happen other than to say that they're all strong currents that can pull you under the water and can carry you out into deep water really fast and they can be very difficult to fight. I have not had much personal experience with rip currents, but I have felt very strong undertoes on, on many occasions. They can be hard to fight against, but you can resist them in two ways. If you're in maybe knee-deep water or less and you feel terrible undertow, you can plant your feet in the sand and you can lean very hard into them. I remember as a kid, of course you do dumb things when you're a kid, you want to play in the undertow, yeah, to see if it actually knocks you over or not. 
Yeah, so we'd, we'd plant our feet, but we made sure we didn't get very deep. You'd, you'd plant your feet, and, and, and that water would pull all the sand away from your feet, and your feet would go deeper in the sand, and, and you'd lean forward and actually put your hands up on the beach so that it didn't pull you into the water. That's one way. You could just plant your feet and stand there. But if you happen to be out in maybe waist-deep water, you can't plant your feet. It just, just takes your feet right out from under you, which that has happened once or twice to me as a young man, too. What you have to do then, if you're caught in the undertow, you kind of have to swim at a 90-degree angle to, to kind of get out of it. It's, it, it's going to pull you a little bit, but it doesn't just suck you right out of there. You swim as hard as you can, kind of at an angle to the undertow, and then you can kind of get out of it. I like to think of peer pressure as an undertow. You know it's out there. But usually it catches you by surprise. It's hard to fight, but you have to resist. Do not consent. Resist the pressure, Solomon says. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Number two, avoid the people. Verse 15, he says, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Don't hang out with people who pressure you to sin. I know that's a tough call for many young people. And I know you can't hide from the world. It may be lonely for a while, but what Solomon's driving at is, don't listen to the gossip, stay away from the bullies, don't laugh at the dirty jokes, find a new group of friends who don't make fun of people, redesign your work schedule if you have to, avoid the partiers, whatever it takes, swim away from the current, don't hang out with people who pressure you to sin. Avoid the people. Number three, reject their path. <clears throat> Verse 15 also. Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. In other words, once you identify the source of the peer pressure, stay away from the places they go. Don't do the things that they do. Stay away from the places where they hang out. Avoid the crooked habits of your co-workers. Avoid the humor of those who mock people. Stay out of the circles of those who live lifestyles of sin and try to drag you in with them. Keep your foot from their path, he says. There's an interesting companion passage. We won't read it today. You, you may be familiar with it. We've quoted it many times. Psalm 1, just, just six verses in Psalm 1, but the first verse of Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the pathway of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. The ma that man is blessed if he rejects their path. So you resist the pressure, you avoid the people, you reject their path, and then number four, you remember their outcome. And here's where you have this interesting uh, little riddle, this interesting m metaphor he uses in verse 16 and 17. For their feet run to evil, they make haste to shed blood. And then he says, surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of the owners. The trap that they set for others eventually comes back upon them. And what he means by verse 17, it says, it, it, It's foolish to set a net to catch birds while the birds are watching you. 
Doesn't make any sense. You want to catch those birds over there? Yeah, spread the net out here while they're looking at me. Well, they're, they're not going to fly into the net when you're when you're spreading the net. And he said, and he said, the people who are doing this peer pressuring, as Solomon says, they, they think that they're setting a net for somebody else. But he said they're setting a net for themselves. And if you're alert to it, when they spread the net to trap you, you're like the bird. You you you, you, you be, be, be watching them, be aware of what's going on with them. Because he said, then you won't fall into the net. Just like trying to spread a net when birds are looking at you. He said, you watch those people who are, who are trying to pressure you to sin. Then you won't fall into the net. But so he said that they think they're setting a net for somebody else, but they're basically setting a net for themselves. He said, they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. You know, crooked businessmen eventually lose business. Cheaters eventually get caught. Gang members end up getting shot or arrested. Gossips eventually make a name for themselves. Bullies eventually meet their match. Giving in to peer pressure is, is always self-destructive. It's a well-known Bible principle repeated many ways in the Scripture. Proverbs 26, 27 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it himself, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. And you know the well-known verse in Galatians 6, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Jesus said to Peter, when Peter pulled out his sword, was going to swipe off the, the, the high priest's servants. In fact, I think he was aiming for his head. The guy ducked him. He just got his ear there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, Peter, put, put your sword away. Those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Which is where we get our phrase, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, sin that is unconfessed and unrepented of will always come back to bite us. Always does. Evil schemes are self-destructive. Sin that is unconfessed and unrepented of will always come back to bite us. <clears throat> There's a story told of a brave young pastor who in a small town, he became acquainted with a couple of brothers who, who owned about half the businesses in town. They were, they were quite wealthy. They often used their financial influence to turn the tables in their favor on other people. They pressured people to do things their way. They, or they intimidated and manipulated folks with their wealth. And they had quite a reputation, although most of the folks in town never said much because the brothers owned half the town. But the young pastor stood very firmly on the scripture, was preaching the gospel and, and preaching the word of God. The two brothers were friendly to him, but not too friendly. One of the brothers died unexpectedly. And the surviving brother, the guy was shocked, came to the young pastor, asked him to do the funeral. And he said to him, you know, pastor, there are people in this town who never liked our business practices. Nothing personal from our standpoint, just business. I read that, I thought, you guys sound like the mafia. Nothing personal, just business. Bang. Yeah. Nothing personal, just business. You know, I mean, I know a lot of folks didn't like what we did, but it was just business. But I'll tell you what, Pastor, I'll give $20,000 to your church if you'll say at my brother's funeral he was a saint. They slapped the pastor on the back and walked away. You know, the pastor saying anything, oh, wow. I, you know. Well, he was, he was very courageous. Funeral day came. He's reading the eulogy about everything that the deceased brother had done. And so, supposedly, all the business, all the things he started. And he said to the crowd there, big crowd in the church, he said, I know some of you didn't like the business practices of this man. You thought he was a manipulative rascal who took advantage of people. And he was. 
But he said, compared to his brother back there, he was a saint. <laughs> Evil schemes are always self-destructive. Okay? Sin that is unconfessed and unrepented of always comes back to bite you. So when you are confronted with peer pressure to sin, Solomon says, resist the pressure, avoid the people, reject their path, remember their outcome, and if sinners entice you, do not give in. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you have such an awesome respect for the Lord Jesus that you will obey what He says? Because your relationship to Jesus Christ is where wisdom begins. Let's pray. Lord, I ask You to guide us as we walk our way through this sin-cursed world. There is lots of pressure there, Lord, and not just on our young people. Our young people certainly face pressure all of the time, but they aren't the only ones. We as adults face pressure to do various things or to go certain places or to act certain ways or to feel a certain way about a certain issue. We're all subject to the possibility of peer pressure. The Lord of folks are enticing us to sin, enticing us to go against the convictions we have from the Word of God. I pray, Lord, that we will resist always. And if we need to find a new circle of friends, we'll do so. We'll avoid their paths. We'll, we'll remember what the outcome is of those sinful choices. Lord, I pray that we will be focused on the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.